Would you open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 28, book of Genesis chapter 28, and I will start the reading at verse 10, Genesis 28 verse 10. Our series, if you've just joined us for the first time, is on defining moments of the major players of the Old Testament. Today we're looking at Jacob, and if my sermon has a title, I would call it Discovering God for Yourself. Genesis 28, verse 10, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie will give, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep. And said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz at first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me, and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat, and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth. To you. May God be pleased to bless the reading and the preaching of this, his most holy and infallible word. 
brief word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray now for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus by your Holy Spirit to be upon every mind in this place that their perception of what I say will be received as you intend and upon my tongue that I'll be cleansed that I might be your transparent instrument to say everything you want said, nothing you don't want said. Enable me to be clear, very simple, that no one misses anything that they need to hear. Let this be a life-changing word, and a word that brings great honor and glory to your name. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. A defining moment is a phrase we use sometimes to describe an incident that shapes your future. Doesn't come with any expectancy. You don't know at the time you're about to have one. You've had it, and then later you look back. Ah, that was a defining moment. It just happens. You realize later how important it was. Often we don't appreciate a significant event at the time. We appreciate it later. And so I focused today on this verse. Jacob having his first experience himself with God because he had a great heritage. How would you like it if your grandfather was Abraham, your father was Isaac, and you're Jacob? And yet he had never discovered God for himself. It was always something that happened to them. But now Jacob is going to find out how real God is. No longer would he have to depend on the fact of being Abraham's grandson or Isaac's son. And perhaps there's someone here today. You've heard it all. Maybe you were brought up in a Christian home. Maybe you were brought up in a school and you were taught certain things. Someone has witnessed to you in the time past or they gave you a book. And you thought, maybe yes, maybe no. The truth is, something needs to happen to you, as it happened to Jacob. Because once it happens to you, you don't need anybody else to tell you, because it's real to you. That is what I'm talking about today. And so in verse 16, Jacob said, Surely the Lord is in this place. I was not aware of it. He's in this place, and I did not know it. Well, that's what I want to talk about today. Now, most of us have a moment in our lives that we would say was a defining moment. It stands out as life-changing. It's what perhaps gives you an identity, purpose, reason for living, normally comes passively without any anticipation. Uh, Now, there are defining moments in Jacob's life that we've looked at in the past. He stole his brother Esau's birthright. Uh, He tricked his father Isaac to get the patriarchal blessing. Uh, We're going to see probably next week uh, what it was like working many years for a man named Laban. And then he married Leah and Rachel. My plan next week, which is Mothering Sunday, 
is to speak on the subject, the unloved woman, Leah. That's next week. But there are other defining moments in the life of Jacob. We may get to them down the road. He wrestled with an angel. Uh, he assumed his beloved Joseph was dead to find out he was alive. Uh, I've written a book on Jacob called, uh, using Shakespeare's words, All's Well That Ends Well. But I am pretty sure that the first real defining moment for Jacob was this account when he realized that this place that had been called Luz, and he came to a certain place. It's interesting the way it's put. He came to a certain place. Meant nothing to him. Perhaps you've come into this building for the first time. It's just another place. A certain place means nothing to you. But what if today, what if in this service, what if God were to show up and it only needs to happen to one? And you may feel as I speak, well, nobody knows me in this place. I'm not important. Do you know the type of person God likes to bless? The person who thinks he's the most insignificant and the most unworthy and the least likely to be sought after. If that's you, oh, you're a candidate. But God likes to find people like that. Well, uh, here's what happened prior. Uh, Jacob had stolen his brother's birthright and then stole the patriarchal blessing and Esau vowed to get vengeance. At his mother's suggestion and with his father's blessing, Jacob left home and nothing would be the same again. Well, why is this message today important? Well, for one thing, Jacob turns out to be one of the most important people in the Bible his name appears more than any other, Jacob or Israel, more than any other name. But here's the big thing. If God could love Jacob, there's hope for us all. Because Jacob was not a good guy. He was not a nice person. He's not the type of person that you'd want to go on holiday with. He's not the kind of person you want to invest money and see how can you turn my money into a fortune. Uh, you wouldn't want to spend much time with him at all. You wouldn't want him to be married into your family. Not a nice guy. And perhaps you, if you're honest, would say, I'm Jacob. Anybody here like that? You say, I'm Jacob. I have been pretty awful. Now, there's two kinds of people, generally speaking. One, those who think they're great, nice, good, harmless, and those who know they're the opposite. You'd be interested to know the type of person God wants to find. He's looking for the rogue. He's looking for the bad guy. 
You see, Jesus was like that. One of the criticisms they made of Jesus was that he sat with sinners. That was the phrase. The Pharisees could not stand Jesus. And one of their charges is, look, look who he keeps company with. And then when he chooses his disciples, he chooses Matthew, one of them, a tax collector, the most despised kind of person in ancient Israel. And Jesus chooses one of him. And his reply was that the Son has not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So, two kinds of people, generally speaking, righteous, sinner. Good people, bad people. Which are you? Well, if you're righteous, not good. Well, R.T., I thought, you know, God wanted righteous people. We need moral people. There are enough wicked people in the world. Well, you'll just have to get over it. Because Jesus looked for the sinner. He said, I haven't come to call the righteous. So if you're righteous, sorry, you're not on his list. He's not on your case. But if maybe, if maybe you are here and you say, I have been so awful. Maybe you raped somebody. Maybe you abused somebody. Maybe you were unfaithful to your wife. Maybe you stole money and you say, well, the people I stole from, they've got plenty. And you've glossed over. It hasn't bothered you. You've hurt people. You've walked over people to get to where you are. You're not a very nice person. You've changed lives for the worse. There are people that are hurting today because of your influence. And you don't want to think about it. But now, maybe you're thinking, oh dear, this is me. This is me. That's the kind of person Jacob was. Manipulator par excellence. Didn't care what he did. He just wanted what he wanted. And you think, well, God wouldn't have a person like that. I'll read a verse to you from Romans chapter 5. Actually, it's Romans chapter 4, verse 5. And here's what it says. That to the one who does not work... What that means doesn't manifest good works, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted for righteousness. In other words, God justifies, that means declares righteous, ungodly people. Uh, so there was nothing about Jacob that hence he deserved anything good. Let me ask you this. Do you feel there's something good about you that you deserve to go to heaven? I'm going to say something I know about you. You may not like it, but if you feel you are good enough to go to heaven, you've just told me something about yourself, you are not a Christian. If you feel you are good enough to go to heaven, I'm sorry, but you're not a Christian. You know, the curse of our age is a feeling of entitlement. We're born this way. 
We're born, we grow up feeling the world owes us something. Uh, this is the way it is today. The world owes me a living. Life owes me something. I want my rights. And the worst kind of feeling of entitlement of all is when you feel that God owes you something. And you honestly believe he owes you. He owes you an explanation why he created the world, knowing man would suffer. He owes you an explanation why this happened and it's not right. You feel he owes you something, a feeling of entitlement. And that's the curse of our age. I have to tell you, you need to realize, and I, I realize what I'm going to say to, right now might seem unfair, but you need to realize that God owes you nothing. And one of the reasons God chose Jacob is to demonstrate that God loves the most undeserving. You see, you feel that you're good and God owes you an explanation. But when you come to the place, you say, I don't deserve anything because I've not been good. And what we know is that God loved Jacob even before he was born. Now, last week I dealt with this a little bit, and I read a particular verse last week. I'm going to repeat it today. And I admit that what I'm about to read, hard to understand, one of the most difficult teachings in the Bible, it's called predestination, election. Not here to explain it. There are some teachings in the Bible that you're better off not try to figure them out, just believe them. Take the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Don't try to figure it out. Just say, well, that's obviously what the Bible is saying. And so when it comes to Jacob and Esau, you see, they were twins. And when they were in their mother's womb, God said to their mother, Rebecca, the elder shall serve the younger. And so it turns out that the oldest, which was Esau, uh, was born first, and then came Jacob, that God would love Jacob. And here is the way it is read. In Romans chapter 9, verse 11, though they were not yet born, Jacob and Esau, had nothing, nothing either good or bad, had done nothing either good or bad, in order that the purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Hard, hard to take. That's what it says. And then, in case you missed it, and get, didn't get the implication, Paul goes on. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. I don't know if you've ever heard of the hymn writer, Fanny Crosby, wrote a lot of great hymns, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine, uh, To God Be the Glory, Great Things He Has Done. And one day, she was speaking in a prison and speaking on this subject. And, you know, where God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And said to these prisoners, 
God may pass you by. And as she spoke, a prisoner cried out, O Lord, don't pass by me. And she went home and wrote the hymn. Now, in the first service, I need to tell you, this was not in my notes to say. It just came out, but now it's on my mind, so I remembered it. And we sang it together. I asked them, please don't let me sing a solo. But enough, join me. So if you recognize it, join me. Pass me not, O gentle Savior. Hear my humble cry. While on others thou art calling, do not pass me by. come to God in that spirit knowing he doesn't have to come to us he could pass us by and be perfectly just in doing so but what God is saying to you today is to climb down from an arrogant spirit come to him on bended knee and say Lord don't pass by me and you ask for mercy. And God is rich in mercy. I ask this question about every week. Do you know for sure, if you were to die today, would you go to heaven, do you? And if you were to stand before God, you will. And he were to ask you, he might. Why should I let you into my heaven what would you say to him? I ask that people in pulpits, I ask them on airplanes, trains, restaurants, barber shops. Wouldn't do you any harm to ask people that. So what would you say? God says to you, why should I let you into my heaven? And I often get the answer when I ask these people, they reply, well, I've been a very nice person. And I just say to you, not good. Oh, surely it ought to be nice. Not good in this case, because that shows at the moment, Holy Spirit hasn't touched you. At the moment, you still feel entitled. At the moment, you think it's your good works that's going to get you to heaven. Not good. But were the Holy Spirit to convict you, and you realize... He owes you nothing. That's when you qualify 
for all that I'm talking about today. Now, here is a man who needed to discover God for himself. One thing, to have godly parents. Another, to discover the God of your parents. Some think being born into a Christian home makes you a Christian. Some think being born into a godly home makes you a Christian. Listen, the advantage of being born into a godly home is that you have a head start. It won't save you. And there are those who think they're Christians just because on your passport it's stamped Christian. <laughs> what that means is you're Christian, not a Buddhist. Christian, not a Muslim. And there are people who say, well, I'm a Christian. Do you realize that's not what makes you a Christian? What makes you a Christian is when you come to the place that realize you are not entitled to anything, but you've sinned against God and you're convicted of your sins, and you're sorry for your sins, and you come to Him and ask Him for mercy. That is the way you come to God. And I, the, I've had this on my mind today. I have a feeling, either in the first service or in this service, could have been this one, because I haven't had any evidence of this, but it's this. Somebody here, you have a praying mother You've wandered from home, wandered from your background, but your mother keeps praying, keeps hoping that one day, one day, you'll come home. Is that you? You see, God's on your case. That privilege you had being born into a Christian home. You see, there's a phrase in this country. You're bound to have heard it. It's called being born to privilege. Born to privilege. What that means is you're born into aristocracy. Your parents have royal blood. Or you're gentry bred. And You've had advantages. You get to go to a public school. And you have a head start in life. Born to privilege. I want you to know something. There's a higher privilege than that. It's when you are born into a Christian home. Maybe you don't appreciate it at the time. I'm sure that was me. When I was a boy back in the hills of Kentucky, uh, I was converted when I was six years old. I believe I was. But uh, my parents, they went to church every time the church door was open. I had to go to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and if there was another service, I had to be there. And in my backyard, we had a basketball court. And I remember week after week, I'd be playing basketball in my own backyard with my friends. And then I'd hear my son call my voice, time to go to church. I thought, oh, no. He said, I said, these kids get to use my basketball in my backyard, in my uh, court, and they get to play. I have to go to church. And I'd get in the car and see them playing. Didn't appreciate it. Until years later, I'm back in Ashland. I began to ask about old friends 
I asked about Juan, who would play in my backyard when I would go to church. Oh, well, he's an alcoholic living on the outskirts of town. His wife has left him. He's pitiful. Nobody wants to have anything to do with him. What about so-and-so? Oh, have you heard about him? The police are looking for him. He can't even come to town. They're the ones that got to play basketball. I had to go to church. Didn't appreciate that then. And is there one here? You have a background. You were so privileged. So privileged. And I, I have to say this, and I don't mean to be unfair. But if you live your life and don't, Take advantage of this moment because God is on somebody's case. And then one day you stand before God and you realize you were the one born to privilege, not those that are royal. You're the one. And look what you did with your life. And you didn't want to have anything to do with the God of your parents. Well, you see, Jacob... His grandfather is Abraham. How would you like that for a background? His father was Isaac. He would grow up hearing about how Abraham and Sarah couldn't have children. And then one day God gave Sarah a baby, Isaac. And that's the kind of heritage. And yet Jacob still hadn't discovered God for himself. And there needed to be a time when he needed this. Uh, our son, he's named after me. For those of you that don't know, my name is Robert Tillman. My father named me after his favorite preacher, R.T. Williams. And I've known nothing but R.T. all my life. Our son, we named him Robert Tillman. He's junior. But for some reason, we started calling him T.R. Somebody suggested that and... and uh, that's what we call him. He was here a month ago in the service. He was converted when he was 10 years old. I baptized him in a church just north of Oxford years ago when he was 10 years old. Brought up in the church uh, when we lived in Oxford. Uh, we would have family devotions, read the Bible every day, say the Lord's Prayer. They go off to school. We continued that when we moved into London. But after he gets older, he has heard so much of that. I don't know how much of it stuck. A prophetic friend of mine, if I gave you his name, you know who it is, would say to me, your son T.R. needs to see life after life. That means the real thing after he's been saved that he hasn't seen before. Well, T.R. moved away from London back in the 1990s. And I don't know if he was going to church at all in those days. A friend of mine, another prophetic friend, his name, John Paul Jackson, came to see me in my vestry at Westminster Chapel. And I was concerned about TR. And I said, uh, John Paul, can you give me any hope for our son? Any word for TR? He said, yes, yes. Your son will be the way 
the movement of the Holy Spirit comes into Westminster Chapel. He's going to be the one to, to do it. He's going to be the vehicle. And I just smiled. I said, John Paul, didn't get this one right. I'm sorry. <laughs> First of all, TR's not in London. Second, he's moved to America. He's not even going to church. He's not even serving the Lord. Well, as it happens, Louise had a very bad cough, horrible cough. When she coughed, it sounded like a seal bark, and it was embarrassing for her. And when she ride the tube, people would get up, go to another car, get off, sit somewhere else. They thought she was contagious. Uh, I could go on and on about this cough. Nothing could heal her. When we'd go to Florida, we would think maybe the clear air will heal her. Uh, it got so bad that one time her eye looked like she's going to have a detached retina. And the physician, uh, the specialist in St. Thomas Hospital said, if you don't stop that cough, you're going to lose your eyesight. And then they kept her in the Brompton Hospital in London overnight, try to cure the cough. Nothing could cure it. it was, and those days, it was so horrible that I said to one of my deacons, I said, it's pretty bad. You can expect that I will have to resign any time and go back to America. One day, Colin Dye said, RT, would you like to meet Rodney Howard Brown? Yeah, I'd be glad to meet him. I knew a little bit about him. So we had breakfast. While there, I said to Rodney, what are you doing Saturday? Because I instantly felt that there was something about this man. I said, would you come to Westminster Chapel Saturday morning and just pray for Louise? No way would I get Louise to go to his meetings in Wembley. Louise wouldn't be caught dead there. But I said, maybe if you'd come. I didn't have a right to ask that. I just said, any chance you would, because my wife is not well. He agreed to come. We were going to meet at 10.30 on Saturday morning. So I told Louise that somebody's going to pray for her if she would get be at the chapel 10.30 on a Saturday morning. Those days, her cough was so bad that five nights out of seven, she'd sleep in another room because I couldn't sleep if she started that cough. So, Saturday morning, she sleeps in. She'd coughed all night. She comes out at 9.30, and she says, I want that man to pray for me. Those are her very words. She didn't know who he was. I want that man to pray for me. We get over to the chapel at 20 to 11. Rodney's still there with his wife and children. You need to know she was in no state for having any faith. She had no faith. She just was willing to let the man pray for her. No faith at all. There was no hype, no worship, no singing a few choruses to work up something. She just sat there in almost a comatose position in the chair. And Rodney and Adonica just lay hands on her and they start praying. And after five minutes, maybe three or four, Louise was instantly healed. And that was 20 years ago. 
Because of that, Rodney said, I think you ought to come to one of our meetings in America. And it worked out that she could go to Lakeland, Florida, uh, just a few weeks later. Well, being in Lakeland, she's not far from where T.R. was living in the Florida Keys. And Louise said to T.R., come up and get me, and I'll come and spend a day in the Keys with you before I go back to London. And then told T.R. about this service she was attending and how wonderful it is. He said, well, I'll come, but I'm not going to go to that service. When he came to pick her up, she said, would you please just stay one hour? He said, I'll stay one hour, but in one hour, we're out of here. <laughs> At 11 o'clock that night, T.R. was so moved by the service, tears rolling down his cheeks. He, he was so touched by the ministry of Rodney Howard Brown that he asked, where is Rodney going to be next? <laughs> Turned out it was in New Orleans. T.R. drove a thousand miles from Miami to New Orleans to see Rodney. There he got prayed for. I mean, he got it big time. And he was a changed man. One of our deacons at Westminster Chapel, hearing of this, just came up to me and she said, he, he said, do you think there's any chance that T.R. would move back to London? I'll give him a job. Well, I'll ask him. Two weeks later, T.R.'s back in London. Full of the Holy Spirit, he gets young people around him. They come into our flat. They sing choruses. On Tuesdays in the chapel lounge, he gets 30, 40 young people around him. They start praying for each other. The Holy Spirit comes. One Sunday evening, I give the platform over to some of the young people to give their testimony. Then at the end, I said, how many of you would like these young people to pray for you after the service? The whole congregation came back, 200 or 300 more, just to have those young people pray for them. That was when the Holy Spirit came into the chapel. We started praying for the sick, anointing with oil. We became a word spirit church. John Paul Jackson had got it right, exactly as he prophesied. And tomorrow is John Paul Jackson's memorial service. He died a week ago. How these things happen, why, we don't understand. But here's the thing. T.R. needed to discover God for himself. And I wonder if there's anybody here like that. Let me ask you this question. How long does it take you to recognize the presence of God? Sometimes we see something and we say, that's not God. That's not God. That's not God. And then later we think, hmm, I could have been wrong. And that was much what we have here with Jacob. Jacob has a dream. He sees the glory of God. He hears the word, I am the God of your fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and I will be with you. And when Jacob wakes up, he says, the Lord was in this place and I didn't know it. Sometimes the most unlikely place, the most unlikely person, 
is used in your life. And you may say, well, I wouldn't want that person to be used in my life. And then God says, well, if you're ever going to get it right, then it'll be that person. He'll just show you. Don't ever say, I won't do that or I won't do this. God says, really? And he may humble you and let the person you least liked or least expected. Well, what was it that Jacob would need to learn? Well, for one thing, Jacob would need to learn, I would call it this, the fact of God. The fact there is a God. The fact of the existence of God. Now, there is an etymological difference between fact and truth. But when it comes to Christianity, you've got to understand the resurrection of Jesus was truth, but it was also a fact. That on the third day after Jesus was crucified, Jesus was raised from the dead. Fact. Born of a virgin. Fact. Lived without sin. Fact. Died on the cross. His blood satisfied God's justice. Fact. And when a person rediscovers God, he says, all of this was real. I didn't realize that what has happened to me made me see this is all so real. What I was taught is true. That needs to happen to somebody in this place. The fact of God. Well, I must come to a close, but a couple things. God was so moved, uh, sorry, Jacob was so moved at what God had done to him that he made a vow to be a tither. He said, R.T., you were doing fine until you had to bring up that. <laughs> well, I need to tell you that tithing did not begin with the Mosaic law. It began with the patriarchs. Abraham was the tither. Jacob now, how did he know one-tenth? That was the plan of the Holy Spirit. That's how he knew the Holy Spirit. This has always been God's way. Tithe. That came out of this. John Wesley said the last part of a person to be converted is his wallet. <laughs> but when you begin to be a tither and give as God has raised you up to do, that begins to show that you really saw the face of God. One other thing. We're told that after all this happened, Jacob was afraid. He was afraid. What needs to return to the church is the fear of God. People aren't afraid of God. Should they be? Yes. Yes! The earliest message of the New Testament was John the Baptist. He said to the Jews, the Pharisees, who has warned you to flee? Flee! Run from the wrath of God. The wrath of God is a no-joke thing. Jacob was afraid. And perhaps the fear of God needs to grip you now. I come back to the question, do you know for sure if you were to die today, would you go to heaven? And if you stood before God and he asked, why should I let you in? What is your answer? If you say it's because I'm a nice person, 
I wouldn't want to be in your shoes for anything in the world. If you say, it's because I was brought up in a Christian home, I wouldn't want to be in your shoes for anything in the world. If you say, it's because I've done my best, I wouldn't want to be in your shoes for anything in the world. But if you are prepared to pray this prayer right now, you don't need to say it out loud. You don't even need to close your eyes. But in your heart, repeat this. If you need it, if you don't need it, fine. If you need it, say, Lord Jesus, I need you. I want you. Thank you for not giving up on me. Thank you that you've spoken to me today as you have. Thank you that I can see you're on my case. I'm sorry for my sins. Wash my sins away by Jesus' blood. I welcome your Holy Spirit into my heart. As best as I know how, I give you my life. <laughs>